It's Wool Shift Dust, a Silo TV podcast, back in your ears to talk episode four of Silo, the dystopian sci-fi thriller on Apple TV+. I'll be your host, Alicia, the lore master of this particular podcast, and I'm joined by my co-host, Luke, the political historian repping the show only fans with his fresh perspective on the story. Right, Luke? Yeah, my perspective is extremely fresh. And I'm going <laughs> to say I'm very suspicious of Bernard and Sims this episode. There is some shady stuff going down between IT and judicial. Oh, we're definitely going to dig into that. Yeah. I think people love to hear your Bernard and Sims opinions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, get, I'm oh. getting shade on the Discord now. Like the, the Bernard <laughs> hatred. I'll try, I'll try and tune it down a bit. Well, no, I think go for it. I, I know at least Jean, another <laughs> member of the Lorehounds family, he was boo hissing along with you at the moment. So. <laughs> Okay, so for the listeners at home, here is your official spoiler warning. We will be spoiling all plot points through episode four of this series. And I, as the fan of the Silo series of books by Hugh Howey, will be discussing this section of the books as well. But we will not be spoiling any plot points from the books or show set after episode four. We must protect Luke's unspoiled thoughts and theories at all costs. I also just want to issue a mild content warning this time as well. We will lightly be discussing suicide in this episode. Just surface level discussion for this episode, but I wanted to throw a trigger warning out there just in case. All right, Luke, with a spoiler warning out of the way, inquiring minds want to know, what is the most shocking moment of this episode for you? Uh, when Mons puts up the temporary homemade punching bag. The first time I watched this, I thought, oh, no, oh, this is a hanging, isn't it? He's going to hang himself. I was so relieved when he started punching oh. that mattress. It's the first time watching it. I'm like, moms, don't do it. Don't do yeah. it. Yeah, we're definitely going to get into that. That was super duper a fake out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, overall... This was a it was a quieter, more politically driven episode than episode three, which means some people liked it better and some were disappointed it wasn't a big action set piece. It was short as well. It was a tight it, 45 minutes. Yeah, it felt like it flew by for me. Yeah, but there's definitely a lot of delicious detail in there for lovers of political intrigue like us. We'll definitely be getting into all that and everything else, including costume design in our episode breakdown right after this commercial break. Your regularly scheduled breakdown will begin in three, two, one. Welcome back. Episode four is titled Truth, i.e. that word we saw scrawled into the back of Holston's badge. We're now entering the third section of the book rule, a section called Casting Off. We'll have to wait until a future episode to discuss the implications of this title. But we have a new director for this and the next episode. We talked a little bit about David Semmel in the last episode, but basically he's had a long and storied career directing television, everything from Ally McBeal to Watchmen. And the episode was written by writer-producer. Um, he's French-American, but since he grew up in the U.S., I'm going to pronounce his name Remy Aubuchon. Now, Luke, I know this is someone you were particularly excited to see was involved in this project. Yes, he was an exec producer and writer on Caprica, the Battlestar Galactica right. spin-offs. He was writer-executive producer on Falling Skies, and he and he and Will Patton worked together on that. Will Patton was one of the main cast on Falling Skies. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, so possibly there's a link there. For those that don't know about Falling Skies, it's basically a apocalyptic dystopia following like a bunch of survivors after an alien invasion. The twist is that the aliens use children and teenagers they have like this mind control device that they can strap on so they sort of use them as sort of slave labor slash oh. um sort of messages between the aliens and the humans and okay. yeah you find out through the course of the series why they're doing this 
Will Patton and Noah Wiley, Dr. Castle from ER, were the two main leads in that. Okay, so Remy and Bouchon, well-versed in sci-fi. Yes, very well-versed. So what had you excited about him, about those shows? What do you hope that he brings to this series? I mean, I like Falling Skies, but it never had the... It occasionally suffered from the problem of the plot writing checks that the budget couldn't cash. Ooh, um, and this, this and, has the budget. And, yeah, and likewise, Caprica, to some extent, suffered from the same problem. So, yeah, like you say, I'm really excited to see what he can do with a budget that matches his vision. Because as we've said before, Apple have made a serious investment in right. Silo. He's very good at writing these sort of character-driven episodes. And yeah. like I say, he and Will Patton have worked together before on Falling Skies for like four or five seasons. So I imagine they know each other pretty well by this point. Do you think that translated well on screen, that there seemed to be a good link between the uh, way that character was written for, the way that actor was written for? Yeah, I mean, like, like I said last week, Will Patton has made a good part of his career out of playing tragic characters, characters that are, that are suffering. So Will Patton can definitely do, he definitely has the experience to play the character Mons as right. he is in this episode. Okay. Which is to say, you know, right on the ragged edge of completely losing it, basically. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's where we pick up with uh, him on the ragged edge of completely losing it. But, but actually, before that, we start this episode with a flashback. Um, we know it's the past because Dr. Nichols is sporting a douchey blonde dude that he definitely grows out of later. Is it just me or does he look really like Brian Cranston in this episode? Yeah, okay, fair. Yeah, maybe it's that like sort of, I don't know, we're showing you it's a flashback hairdo. That is a horrific hair piece, Ian. <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad you grew out of that. I mean, it, it certainly shows it's a different version. But yeah, so we, we meet 13-year-old Jules, who's played by Amélie Child-Villiers. And um, she's helping her mother, Hannah, played by Sienna. I don't know, a lot of French names here. Sienna Guiri. She's helping her give her brother, Jacob, who's played by Cole Vernon, oxygen. Uh, we find out later that Jacob is about 11 here. We see his lips are blue, his heart is racing dangerously, and he's looking very sickly. But we don't find out this episode what exactly is going on with him or what happens to their mother later. Luke, what do you think is going on with Jules's brother and mom? I mean, we have no idea what's going on with Jules's mom. And I mean, I don't think you're meant to take anything more from what's happening with her brother Jacob than that he's very, very ill. And that this is an illness that has been going on for some time and the family is used to coping with the effects because Mrs. Nichols, her mother, she asked her to bring an oxygen tank and Jules is not at all freaked out by this. She takes Jacob's pulse. So I think you're meant to understand that this is an illness he's been suffering with for some time and it's something that the family is used to dealing with the effects of. Yeah, in the books, uh, Jules's mother is was a nurse, uh, so that could explain why she seems so well versed with this. But also, it could also be that that she's just indeed used to taking care of her sick son. Um, yeah, and, I, and the oxygen the oxygen tank is like in the apartment in the yeah, flat. So clearly, it's an ongoing problem. Before, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking we're going to get more of this backstory in episode eight because that episode is titled Hannah, aka the name of Juliet's mom. Um, so I'm going to hold off on making too many backstory comparisons right now, except I will point out that in the books, Juliet's brother died in infancy after being born prematurely. And uh, his name was Nicholas in the book, but I can see why they changed it. Luke, Nicholas Nichols, cool name. Yeah, it, it, might, it might be a touch confusing if you're not watching carefully. So yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Interestingly, the name Jacob comes from the Hebrew word to follow. So it's a good name in a way for a second child. Okay. 
For now, though, Jacob comes to after Juliet places a stuffed dog in his hand and he identifies himself and his sister, a.k.a. Jerkface, because having humor in the darkest moments is a trait that apparently runs in the family. <laughs> uh, we cut to present day and Juliet is just arriving up top to start her new job. She's greeted with news of a quote unquote accident. And we cut to John's under a sheet on the floor and Marnes basically understandably losing his shit. But and, but, inter but interestingly, Bernard and Sims are already there. Yeah, and they're in total nice guy mode. Luke, do you buy it with either or both? Ah, uh, no, I don't. I don't buy it with either, and I find it very interesting that, that Bernard and Sims just happened to be close enough to the mayor's office to turn up within what we can assume is minutes of this tragic event happening. So um, yeah. I find that very suspicious, to say in, in the, the least. In the past, you've uh, you've had less suspicion for Sims than you have for Bernard. Is that changing? Yeah, like I he... think I think it is to be honest, because there's a scene between Mons and right. um, Sims later on that we'll, that we'll get into. Yeah, but yeah, it, Sim, it put Sims very much towards the Bernard end of the scale rather than the Juliet end of the scale. Okay, okay, but yeah, at this point though, both characters are on their best behavior, at least on the surface. It's a much more amicable meeting between Bernard and Jules than we get in the book. Uh, for one, in the book, this is what he says to Juliet about the death of Mayor Johns. He flashed his crooked teeth again. The word down below is that the poor mare, rest her soul, plum wore herself out with this crazy climb of hers. I believe she was hiking down to see you. Isn't that right? So it's actually it's actually in this first interaction with Bernard in the book that pushes Juliet to take her new role as sheriff seriously. Uh, it says in the book she felt a new resolve steal her nerves. Juliet felt for the first time since arriving up top that this was her job. So we don't, yeah, we don't have that um, that push from Bernard that makes Juliet, you know, dig into her new role. We we have a, a slower building of her accepting that in this version. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, with what we saw on screen last week with the badge from Halston with Truth scratched into it, I don't think that was necessary. I think Juliet has already sort of accepted the role at this point, even if it is sort of temporarily and sort of a bit grudgingly. Yeah, yeah, I, I, but we do hear her. We do hear her later in the episode say, you know, she's willing to give it up. She just wants answers for her particular questions, and then she's happy to go back down to mechanical. So it's a slightly different way of framing it. Like she hasn't completely, you know, accepted the call to adventure, as they put it in the hero's journey. Yeah, and in this TV version, Bernard is the one who calls Juliet up from the down deep. Given that we know Bernard didn't want Juliet as sheriff, what do you think his motivations are here? I think. Because Bernard gets made mayor pro temporary on the death of Mayor Johns. I hope we get a bit more of an explanation why it's Bernard that gets made mayor pro temp right. um, next week. But I just Well, it's I can tell you the explanation is that's simply what it says in the pact that the head of IT will become mayor pro temp. Okay. Okay. Um so I am I'm guess I'm guessing that I'm guessing that Bernard didn't want to rock the boat any more than it had already been rocked by the death of the mayor and that, that he's happy to appoint Juliet temporarily until he can get elected as mayor in his own right. Bernard already says that he's that he's he basically says that he's planning to run for election as yeah. the new as the new mayor. So I'm guessing his plan is to have Jules there temporarily while he's running for election and then once he's elected, if he's elected, he can appoint Billings in her place. 
Yeah. So and like Sims and Bernard are both in this scene worried that news of the mayor's death will spark trouble in the silo. So like I said, I'm guessing they don't want to rock the boat any more than it's already been rocked. Yeah. So in the previous section of the book, the situation with Bernard becoming mayor and, you know, appointing who he wants is something that Johns was already worrying about before she died. She says in the book, talking about herself and Marnes, she says the best, the most important thing they could do for the silo was to make sure their legacy endured. No uprisings, no abuses of power. It was why she ran unopposed the last few elections. But she could now sense that she was gliding to the finish while stronger and younger runners were preparing to overtake her. How many judges had she signed off on on Bernard's request? And now the sheriff, too? How long before Bernard was mayor? Or worse, a puppet master with strings interwoven throughout the silo. In this version, though, uh, both seem legitimately concerned about Mars, especially Sims. And it turns out, uh, Luke, you were speculating Sims might not have friends, but it looks like he and, and Marnes are actually kind of like have a little bromance going on. Yeah, right? I don't know. I was, I was thinking more frenemies okay. than, than outright friends. Yeah, I, I have to say I, I was pleasantly surprised by the relationship between these two men. They really do seem like besties. So Sims flipping the serious conversation to bring up Peter Billings yet again does undermine the brotherhood on display here just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, just a touch, yeah. Like I say, I think my description of them would be frenemies because there's a later conversation they have as well in Mon's apartment where Mon's is like clearly dissembling. Well, that's to, what I'm talking to... about now, that conversation, yeah. Oh, okay. Like, Marnes is clearly trying to deflect from this idea of making Bill and Sheriff. I've got to say, I said this in the Discord when I was doing the watch-along. I cannot understand why judicial are so fixated on yeah, well, this one character. I, we'll, I just we'll, don't get We'll it. get in the comments, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I, I don't understand why you don't understand. <laughs> they just, they want their guy on the inside. Of course they do. I, yeah. But, but you're telling me they, they can't. There's nobody else that they can control. Like this guy who has been, uh, who they've taken in. He's been the judge's shadow. He's been, you know, tailored for exactly this purpose. He's their guy. But is it really worth burning your relationship with the mayor? Is it really worth potentially killing? I mean, mayor's dead now. So. Yeah. But is it really worth potentially killing the mayor? Find somebody else. I mean, we've we've seen several characters die now. And of course, Holston and Allison, you can call that their own fault, so to speak. They chose that. But with George, with the mayor, these are super shady. And and uh, it seems like there might be people who are willing to kill to get what they want. And maybe we'll find out that they're willing to do so because they think the alternative is worse. Okay. Um, yeah, so when Juliet walks in, though, at the top of the episode, Marnes is ranting to Bernard and Sims that it was rat poison that killed Johns. He says he knows the signs. He thinks someone in the mids broke into the deputy station and poisoned both their water bottles while they were playing kissy in the landing. But since Johns's water bottle was leaking and they were drinking from each other's, uh, Marnes didn't drink and lived. Luke, does it seem legit? Why do you, who do you think was the target? Johns, Marnes, or both? I still think it was judicial poisoning Mayor Johns. Not Marnes. Uh, not Marnes. Um, by the way, Marnes is right. If it was rat poison, that is like the way the way the mayor was coughing up blood. That would be like the proper physical reaction to rat poison. So well, That makes me feel... Ho I'm a vegetarian and that makes me feel horrible for the rats. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like I said, my dad was a farmer, so mm -hmm. I have some familiarity with rat poison and how it works. So. Yeah. 
yeah, so I don't, don't worry, listeners, I haven't gone around poisoning any men or anything, but yeah. Bernard seems surprised that Marnes thinks he was the target. So do you think Bernard was really surprised by that or do you think he was just acting? I think he was just acting. And I think actually like, the, the case Marnes lays out is quite persuasive. You're not a deputy for like 20 odd years like Marnes has been without racking up a certain number of enemies in the in the criminal fraternity of the silo. So I think what Marnes is saying makes sense from his point of view. And actually to say how upset Marnes is, he's also really focused on finding whoever did this. And yeah, yeah. That's the only thing giving him purpose at this point. And I sort of worry for Marnes' future, what happens if and when they find the person that did this, because I don't think Marnes is going to be satisfied with sending them out to clean. I think Marnes mm. is going to want to kill whoever did this. Yeah. Like that, the guy is sitting on a serious amount of rage. Yeah, we uh, see some vigilante right justice already. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and also this was the scene where we get what I'm going to call the second best line in the episode. Bernard asks, you're saying she wasn't the target? And Marnes, he goes ape on a chair and says, don't say she. You don't say she about her. <laughs> it was very sad, but it also kind of made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, it's, it's not very consistent. He just, yeah, we just see that this is a guy who's just very feeling very protective of this woman that he just lost. Yeah, and I mean, oh. and I mean, we've got to remember back to the last episode, Mons and Mayor Johns, you know, have just gotten everything they've wanted after years of sort of struggling with how they felt about each other. So right, very understandable. Is perfectly understandable. Yeah, this scene did make me sad, though. But yeah, we'll get to the scene at the end of the episode that did bring some tears to my eyes again. Yeah, when he starts seeing her everywhere, my eyes were acting like somebody was cutting onions. Um, yeah. Did you have any ocular wetness malfunctions? No, I didn't, I didn't. It takes a lot. It takes a lot to make me cry at TV and films. Yeah. Which is not to say that, that I don't feel it. It's just it, it takes a lot. If you succeed in making me cry, you've reduced half the audience to absolute sobs. I'm clearly dead on the inside, Alicia. Yeah, I, I wear my emotions on my sleeve, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, many book readers, though, they're noting that Martin seems much angrier in the show than in the book. Though, if you go back and read this section, you can see that there is anger there seething under the surface. He just doesn't start punching people like he does in this version. In this version, though, we also, it gives it room for his relationship with Juliet to grow throughout the episode. I found it nice that in this version, they end up working together to investigate the deaths of their loved ones. In the book, once Juliet comes to the up top, they're both stuck in their own silos of grief, pun partially intended. And Juliet, she's she's carrying around the files for George and Holston, and Marnes is completely broken over John's case file. To share a short passage from the book, this scene takes place from Juliet's perspective as she's sitting in the office watching Marnes handle John's file. Juliet had seen some of those notes, but only from a distance. They were written in Deputy Marnes's hand, hands that would not relinquish the folder, hands that clutched it madly. She had taken peeks at the folder from across the desk and had seen the splatters that faded occasional words and caused the paper to pucker. The writing amid those drying tears was a scrawl, not as neat as his notes in the other folders, which she could see seemed to crawl angrily across the page, words slashed out violently and replaced. It was the same ferocity Deputy Marnes displayed all the time now, the boiling anger that had driven Juliet away from her desk and into the holding cell to work, uh, because she's in the scene, she's sitting in the holding cell working. She had found it impossible to sit across from such a broken soul and be expected to think. 
the view of the outside world that loomed before her, however sad, cast a far less depressing shadow. Uh, and then later she collects Marnes because it's the end of the day. And, and she says, it's five o'clock, Juliet said as quietly and gently as she could. Marnes lifted his face out of his hands. His forehead was red from resting it there so long. His eyes were bloodshot. His gray mustache caked with tears and snot. He looked so much older than he had a week ago in the down deep when he had come to recruit her. Now, does this seem like the same Marnes you're seeing in the show right now, Luke? Yeah, I think this is an understandable change from book to screen. When you're writing a book, you can do, you can obviously do a lot more with the internal monologue. Right. Whereas when people are feeling strong emotions on TV, you have to actually show that through a physical reaction, unless you're going to do like a load of voiceover, which I, I don't think would work and don't think would be appropriate. So, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me that Mans would be more demonstrative. And yeah, I, I think it's perfectly consistent with the way with the way his character's been written in the first three episodes. Nothing struck me as out of character or strange about how he reacted. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad that they found other solutions rather than just going with voiceovers all the time. Yeah. After the opening credits, we jump back to 13-year-old Jules, who's laying that stuffed horse we saw earlier on her brother's empty bed. Um, it seems both he and their mom are gone now, though we still haven't gotten the full explanation, as we said. And uh, Dr. Daddy is too busy to help with things like recycling the belongings of their deceased family members and during which Jules kept that stuffed dog. So I wonder if we're going to see that dog pop up again later. By the way, Luke, I found Ian Glenn's American accent and the accents overall better this week. Did you notice any difference? Um, Rebecca Ferguson is a bit more even, but okay. I guess that's easy to do when you're not standing knee deep in water. You're like <laughs> Or maybe, I don't know if they filmed in order, but it could also yeah. be getting into the character of her some maybe. more time. I've got to say, screw you, Dr. Daddy Nichols. Yeah? Like, absolutely, screw you. Yeah. That is that is just, like, I know you're dealing with your own grief, but, you know, your daughter really needs you, and you're not responding at all. So, yeah, I think that was like my Stringle's strongest reaction to the episode. Just screw you, Dr. Nichols, because <laughs> you're awful. Like, yeah, I just, I know you're dealing with your own grief, but your daughter really needs you and you aren't reacting to that at all. I mean, I think, like I've said before, he does remind me of people that I know in real life. I think that this is a really real way where some people, they just don't know how to, how to show their love. But I, I see that he does love Juliet. Like when he comes down to the basement, we'll talk about later, that look he gives her at the end. I see the love is there. I think he just doesn't know how to express it or how to, you know, he's throwing himself into his own work to get over this and not really considering where that leaves his daughter. I was wondering about this. I mentioned this in the Discord. I wonder if there is like a, a silo equivalent of social services some sort of like child protective services because clearly Dr. Nichols could probably do with some help. So I do like wonder whether there's like a, a social services system in the silo. Um, I guess we saw the social services system named Martha Walker. Yes. So I also wanted to bring up the whole recycling thing. Now in the book, recycling's mentioned, but we don't really get to see it in action like this. So this was a bit of a, bit of a nice world building bonus for me. Um, and I like also how they tied together Jules needing to recycle Holston stuff in the present time to remembering doing the same with her family stuff in the past. Luke, what do you think about the overall recycling system we saw? Yeah, I mean, it stands to reason that the society of the silo would be 
would be incredibly hardcore when it came to recycling and nothing getting wasted. And I do like the fact that the guy in charge of recycling, when he works out that Jules is sort of recycling the items of the deceased, he actually does like take her aside and say, you don't need, you know, you, you, can't you shouldn't keep, be doing this on your yeah, own. You, well, A, you shouldn't be doing this on your own, but B, you can keep some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a yeah. nice touch, and I, I I like that interaction with the guy at the recycling station. The way he kind of wheedles the situation out, Jules, and like in that sort of two minute conversation, he deals with the whole situation with much more empathy than Doctor Nichols manages in the entire episode. I did wonder about the little stuffed animal dog because how would people know what a dog looked like? Um, well, there there are, I mean, they haven't shown it much, probably for practical purposes, but they do have, like, there are animals in the silo. Like, there's animals on the farm, mostly. Okay. Um, but it's not, and they do, they are aware, like, some things later, I can't remember, they refer to some animals, like giraffes or elephants or something, as uh, they're not quite sure if those were ever real, but other, like, common domestic animals. Oh, are, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, when I watched, I rewatched the episode last night with my mom, and when they came to that recycling scene, she was immediately like, don't let them take the dog. And then, you know, and he's like, you can keep it, and she stuffs in her coat. My mom's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yes, we, yeah, it's, it's a universal rule. We can't be cruel to the dog, even if the dog it's is stuffed. stuffed up. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we also see in, the, in this flashback that Juliet's becoming obsessed with her mother's chair. Now, obviously, this is to show us that Juliet has always been mechanically minded, that she's, you know, wants to fix it and can fix it. But this is also something that her father told Johns about her in the book. But Luke, do you think there's any more to this chair subplot than that? No, I think it's part of Jules's character that her way of responding to anything is to find something to, to fix. Because like in last week's episode, she was fixing it. Was it a toaster or something when she was describing what happened with George to Walker? So, like, her natural reaction to grief or, like, any strong emotion is to channel it into something she can fix. Right, yeah, she must um, talk about that later. Yeah. And, yeah, I thought that was that was a good way of showing just how deeply rooted a character trait this is in Jules. And yeah. I think it's, all, it's also a good way of demonstrating that once she set her mind towards doing something, she is going to do it, regardless of what anybody else says, regardless of what anybody else thinks. Once she has come to a decision, she will see that decision through. Because Dr. Nichols keeps saying this chair can't be repaired. And yeah. Jules just flat ignores that. Yeah. Um, and I think that says something quite sort of profound about her character. She will find out what happened to George, no matter what it's going to cost her. Because she's just not the kind of person that can let, that can or will let something like that go. Right. Um, it's interesting also in this scene that they put our baby girl jewels in coveralls or overalls here. Uh, I'm wondering if it's a nod to the, we talked about the ubiquitous coveralls worn in the book. In the book, red coveralls are worn by IT staffers. So people like Allison, not people like uh, Bernard wears silver. But in the show, we see the scavengers wearing this color later. But what's really interesting about the color in this scene is that it matches her mother's chair. So it's kind of creating a subtle visual link to plant the seed that this is her mother's daughter, perhaps. She does say that her mother was the one who taught her to fix things. And her father, meanwhile, he's wearing green, which matches the walls of the house. So he's at home in that house. And Jules clearly is not because the only other object in the apartment that matches baby girl's Jules clothing is the door, the exit. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, while we're talking about costuming. I just want to take a short detour to dive a little more into the costuming in the show in general. Luke, what do you think about the costuming overall? I think it's effective. I think it 
it's obviously sort of workmanlike, very sort of practical. Like you were saying last week, it's sort of dark greens, dark mauves. And you were saying that, that in the book, it's all sort of very gray and it's also very well, that's, gray. That's how I picture it in my head. But to be honest, in the book, everyone's wearing different color coveralls. So maybe I shouldn't picture it so gray. Maybe it's just more the tone that's seeping into my perception. Yeah. But yeah, I like what they did here. And I also noticed that there's a lot of knits a lot of people are wearing, which seems in a way like a nod to our poor late Mayor Johns, who loved knitting, but also it, it's it, practical. Yeah, it do, like I was about to say, it, it is a nod to Mayor Johns, but I would imagine as well, it's also like the way most clothing is going to be produced in the silo as well. Yeah. Presum- presumably, if they have animals on the farm, they've got sheep and other, other animals right. with wool. So I, I don't imagine there's going to be a lot of synthetic fibers because as far as we know, as far as we've seen on screen, it's not like they have access to a lot of oil and chemicals required to make stuff. Yeah, like in the that, um, so it's all going to be natural fibers. In the book, they did because, as we said in the book, the the generator was run on petroleum, so they did have all those oils and made a lot of things from it for very good, sound scientific reasons. Uh, in the show, they've changed it to a steam power generator, so they kind of lose that resource. Though they do still have the mines where we'll hopefully find out more about what they're mining down there. Yeah. And the people doing the initial sorting and the recycling said that that's sort of a punishment detail. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, we're going to get to that in a minute. In this episode, though, yeah, we see more people in the silo wearing those coveralls in different colors. Uh, Like we see this guy Frankie later in yellow and we see, like I said, the scavengers in red. So it seems they didn't completely drop that detail from the books, but they just made it more like actual work wear, not all the time wear. Another interesting costume choice is somebody online said something like, Common always manages to wear the same thing in every project. Like he's got his leather jacket and a turtleneck. I mean, the leather jacket, of course, they can make it. There are cows there. But yeah, I guess they also have hair dye because Juliet is much blonder as an adult than a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I did actually think the the casting for little Juliet was quite good. You, yeah, you could imagine that thirteen year old growing into for sure gro- growing into Rebecca Ferguson because that is something that's like a pet peeve of mine with television is when they cast younger versions of the characters, they don't make them look like they could grow into the older version of the characters. I think they did that quite well. Yeah. Now, for the costuming, Charlotte Morris is the person responsible for overseeing what the credits show us as an extensive costuming team. So you might have seen her previous work on shows like White Dragon, Surge, and Hannah. Um, a lot of her work is very British TV focused, which isn't surprising given this show is filmed in London. Have you watched any of these shows, Luke? I watched Hannah, and I've got to say, I didn't particularly pick up on the costuming. I think, right. again, it's one of those things that... If it's know, working, you don't yeah, the, it. Yeah, the costuming fits in with the world, so it's uh, and if it does that, then it's working. Yeah. Um, okay, so meanwhile, back on the present timeline of the show, Juliet, she's trying to settle into her new job, but Sandy, a clerical worker from the sheriff's office, played by Chipo Chung, she's not making it easy on her. Sandy gives her the keys to the office and Holston's apartment, gets her measurements for her new uniform, but she's a real bitch about it. Basically, she's implying that Juliet's a dirty person and getting mad whenever she does like the slightest thing different from Holston. And uh, she also wants to take Holston's badge back and get Juliet a new one. But obviously that ain't happening and not with Holston's graffiti on the back. And I'm not sure if we've addressed this yet, but Sandy, she's a new character. The book kind of makes it sound like the sheriff's office up top was really just Holston and Marnes. Though Jules did sometimes interact with Mayor John's former secretary, a woman named Alice, who was very sweet. Sandy, though definitely salty 
What are your yeah, thoughts, Luke? There is a lot of salt in this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense that Holston's secretary would be. I don't think she's specifically hostile to Julia. I think she would have been hostile to anybody who was replacing Holston because you get the sense that she and Holston were close, either as sort of friends or at the very least very close work buddies. So I'm not sure she's being cruel to Juliet specifically. I think she would have been hostile to any... If it had been Billings, I could see her being equally hostile to him. But but do you think, I mean, a lot of the things she says are specifically slurs against mechanical. Do you think that that plays into it at all? Yeah, I think she's just trying to get a rise out of Juliet, to be honest. Yeah, I think think she's just... I mean, do you think, like, she would have done slurs about judicial if... Yeah, uh, I think think she's just... If it had been Billings? I think she's just mourning Holston, and her way of mourning Holston is to be incredibly salty to his replacement. I do think this whole scene reinforces the class system of the silo and the idea that people up top look down on the people further down, further physically down in the silo. Um, There's a lot of tension in this scene. And in fairness, Juliet gives as good as she gets. Like, Juliet's not taking any shit. Yeah, I thought, I wonder whether these two characters are going to mellow towards each other over the course of the the series. That's what I'm thinking, because the last time we saw Sandy, she was giggling about Holston and Allison getting it on in his office. So, I mean, she obviously has like a fun, pleasant side. And I'm guessing we might get like a nice mini plot arc showing the relationship between Juliet and Sandy improving, similar to what we started to see with Martins this week. Uh, For now, though, she does seem to have, as we said, a particular prejudice against people from Mechanical, um, to which we get hands down the funniest line of the episode. So Juliet asks if there's anything she can eat. And Sandy responds, I was told to stock the fridge in the apartment, but I have no idea what you people eat down deep. And Juliet replies, children, mostly, sometimes each other. (laughs) Uh, The the show version of Juliet might be funnier than the book version, and I like it. (laughs) (laughs) and also like it's the way the actress playing sandy puts the emphasis on you You people you people as well (laughs) um and i did like the the, the line later on we eat the same shit you do maybe with more salt yeah so maybe the diet and mechanical is a little bit unhealthy you know cut down on the salt guys it's not good well you have to think about like maybe they make a bigger deal about this in the book but mechanical these are people like the people up top you know they're nine to fivers and mechanical, they're like 24-7 people. So they that, probably have to have higher calorie intake to deal with it. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And actually, the more salt makes sense because they're probably sweating a lot. They're probably losing a lot of salt through sweat, to True. be honest, if you think about it. But yeah, I did like that whole exchange of, uh, yeah, <laughs> what do you eat? Mostly children, children sometimes. Sometimes each other. <laughs> well, definitely going to go down as one of the iconic lines of this series. Yeah. <laughs> Um, We also learn in this scene that there are firearms locked in a closet in the sheriff's office. So I'm going to call that Chekhov's closet for now. (laughs) Uh, For anyone who doesn't know what what I'm saying. uh, So Chekhov's gun is an idea in fiction where if you see a gun in the first act, it's going to be used in the third act. Otherwise, Uh, they wouldn't have shown it to you. I did think there was another Chekhov's gun in this episode, which is the shotgun in um, Deputy Marnes' apartment. Absolutely. And we saw that. That was a serious case of of Chekhov's gun. Yeah. 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 So we see Jules settling into Holston's apartment and Bernard stops by and comments on the rattling sound in the vent. And he's pushing Jules to get maintenance on it, telling her she'll make enemies if she fixes things herself. Maintenance? This is a new department on the scene. How are you expecting them to fit into the bigger picture, Luke? 
Yeah, I found it was interesting that maintenance and mechanical are two separate organizations in the silo. So I would have thought maintenance would have been like a sub-department inside mechanicals. I thought that was interesting. I do like Bernard's. They're a very territorial <laughs> bunch. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting twist because um, maintenance, as far as I recall, it's not mentioned as a separate department. So your guess is as good as mine here. I suppose the reason it's separate from mechanical is you wouldn't want to have people having to traipse up from the bottom of the silo to the top. So I guess maintenance is more sort of evenly distributed throughout the silo. Yeah, to help people with things at home rather than yeah. running the engine of the entire thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering whether we might find out they fall under the purview of any other departments that we've spoken about. But I really did like Bernard. That was the most Bernard line I think we've seen in the entire show. So they're very territorial. Because, like, Bernard is the most territory-conscious character of the entire show. So so far, so if he's calling people territorial... You have to wonder if, if he's had his own uh, run-ins with them in the past. Yeah, I, I can imagine there was a serious tea being spilt between IT and maintenance. Yeah. But I also point. but I also wondered if, like, does maintenance report back to him or to judicial or something? Like, will they be searching for the vents to see what could be in there, you know? Maybe, maybe. Um, yeah. It's the way Juliet sort of dismisses it with, oh, I, oh, I don't mind it. As if, like, she doesn't already have a suspicion of what's causing that noise. Right. Because um, I, I think she probably, we'll get to that later, but I think she probably works it out in that instance what it could mm. be. I mean, I don't know. I think I took it as, you know, she's from mechanical and she's wor- she's used to things clanging 24-7. So in a way, it's comforting to her to yeah, not have the silence. That's Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I also love how in this scene, Juliet totally calls Bernard out for accusing her of tape theft and now being all fakey fake, eager to swear her in as the new sheriff. According to her, she says, I appropriated it because we needed it. And then Bernard drops the subject. But that's definitely not the last we'll be hearing about the tape. No. Uh, Luke, do you have any new tape thoughts this week? Anything about this mini plot <clears throat> sticking mm. with you? <laughs> oh, oh, Alicia, really? <laughs> yeah, we need a <laughs> sound effect. Um, I do think you actually find out quite a bit about Bernard's character in, in this episode. In that, I'd sort of thought up until this point that Bernard would would be quite happy as the guy behind the scenes pulling the strings. But I think what you get from this episode is actually, no, Bernard really wants to be the mayor. He really wants to be in charge and Mm. be recognized as being in charge. So you think there's some ego at play? Yeah, there is, there's There's more ego to Bernard than I thought there was. I thought he was quite happy being the guy behind the scenes exercising influence. But I think he wants to be mayor and he wants to be seen to be in charge. And he wants some of the respect and, and the affection that, that Mayor John yeah. was held in as well. The noise from the vent, yeah, as you as you mentioned, we find now later that it was there to alert her. Um, it was there was like a, a little washer or something tied to the end of the twine we saw uh, from the down deep before. Yeah. And that was uh, tied to the bag that we saw last saw the hard drive in um, when she was down there with Holston. And uh, this bag of stuff that a bunch of stuff Juliet spent most of the episode trying to locate. Um, yeah, th- this is maybe wish fulfillment on my part. But I think we're going to see a lot more of like Holston in flashback because clearly, clearly Holston spent some time setting up this these series of clues and this this stuff for Juliet to find. 
And there's still the there's still the note about the flowers that he left in his apartment about counting the number of flowers, mm. stuff like that. So clearly, Holston put a lot of time and effort into laying out these breadcrumbs for Juliet. So hopefully, I'd like to see in flashback Holston setting some of this stuff up. I mean, because- I think. We we saw him set it up um, in the, I don't think we'll get any more of that because we already saw that. But um, David Oyelowo, he is credited for five episodes. So I guess we're going to get at least one more flashback or something with him. Yeah, because we see a couple of very brief flashbacks in this episode. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and indeed. Yeah. So Juliet later, she also finds the note that Holston left her about doubling the flowers in front of the mirror. But we still don't know what that one's about. Um, I, I thought before that it would be potentially a way to point Juliet in the direction of the vent with uh, and, you know, the hard drive and stuff would be in there. But clearly that wasn't it. So that mystery still lingers. Um, do you have any ideas what the doubling the flowers could be? Maybe no, something, not, something to not, do with the mirror itself, maybe? Not a clue, because I'm, I'm with you. I thought that was going to be directing her towards George's file and the hard drive. But no, I literally don't have the first idea what that could be about. I'm wondering if it's going to turn out to be something like the mirrors are one way or something. And you can see that because, you know, if a, if a mirror is a one way mirror, if you put like your finger up against it, it doesn't reflect in exactly the same way. It doesn't have the same depth. So oh, I don't I, know. I, That's I, just I, pure I, speculation. I, I don't know. I, I didn't know that. You learn something new every podcast. <laughs> Hopefully. Yes. But yeah, before Jules can think too much about this, she's called down to break up a fight that was started by Marnes. And yeah, this poor guy is definitely not okay in this episode. He's, he's I'm not I'm not sure that fight is the right way to describe it. Fans <laughs> are just wailing on this poor guy. Yeah, so it's the guy's name is Frankie and he's played by Lee Drage. And Marnes is accusing him of being the poisoner. Uh, it turns out that uh, Frankie had brewed some bad booze a couple years ago that poisoned two levels. But that's not rat poison. But Marnes, he's desperate to find someone to blame. Yeah, and I just like Juliet coming up to me, causing a scene, there are children, and why aren't you in school? (laughs) Um, Yes, good that you bring up the kids, because some people online were wondering why we haven't seen many kids yet, which is, yeah, there are absolutely kids in the silo, of course, Uh, but I'm thinking that mostly it has to do, the fact that we haven't seen them much before this episode probably has to do with filming restrictions about kids, especially if there were still any COVID precautions in place when this was filmed in 2021 going into 2022. Now, if all is right in adaptation land, we should get a storyline later, not this season, where we get a closer look at the schooling system in the silo. But so far, all we know is apparently, as you say, they get to leave school for lunch. Do people leave school for lunch in Britain? It's in, yeah. in, in the Netherlands, it's common. But where I grew up in the U.S., it wasn't allowed. Yeah. In the U.K., the school system is legally has to provide an option for lunch. Right. But if you're in if you're in secondary school, if you're in high school, you can leave school for lunch. But not kids. To. Kids stay. Um, no, not, not if they're in primary school. Okay. And yeah, I think in, in the Netherlands, it's often the opposite. Like the younger ones go home and mommy makes lunch, or, you know. Okay. If they want. Yeah, they don't have to, okay. of course. Yeah, and I love that after this, Jules just straight up comes out and tells Marnes about what she said to Holston about not listening to his wife and the badge and all the rest. And this is how they finally start working together. Because see, people, this is why the world needs more open communication. Not to mention TV shows need more open communication. I (laughs) I get so annoyed with the characters in TV shows who could just prevent bad things from happening if they would only speak to each other, (laughs) even though I know that's realistic. (laughs) What do you think, Luke? No, I agree with you. But I think the interesting thing is Mons doesn't care at all about George or the larger sort of conspiracy of silence that might be affecting the silo. All he cares about is finding Ruth's murderer. So 
I wonder, I wonder whether later on in the series there's going to be any sort of conflict between these two mysteries, whether solving one makes it harder to solve the other, or whether... Which, which two mysteries? The mayor's murder and George's murder. Okay, yeah. Um, because we don't know that the two things are necessarily connected. The characters certainly don't. And I can see a scenario whereby Sims or Bernard or Judge Meadows offers Mons access to the to Ruth's killer if Mons will will act as a spy on Juliet and try to shut down the investigation into George's killing. Yeah. So the pair start their partnership by going to see a guy named Patrick Kennedy, played by Rick Gomez, uh, so they can question his wife Doris, who Marnes says threatened me a few times and meant it. Uh, now, Patrick, he's a real jerk about Holston dying, but it turns out he's bitter because his wife actually died, too, a year ago, and he blames Marnes for framing her, presumably for something related to the crimes her husband is supposed to have committed. Marnes later says something about Patrick being involved in bribery and extortion and a past jam with judicial over selling unsanctioned relics. But as we find out later, Doris was included in the name of suspects given to Marnes by Sims without any mention of dear Doris's death. As Sims put it, you know what they say, Sam, if you want to lose something forever, give it to data management. Uh, <laughs> now, any thoughts yet about what this could be about? What do you make of Patrick? He's a new character for the show, but he's credited for three episodes. How do you think we'll see him next? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. I'm surprised that we will see him again, because I just thought he was a way of illustrating Mons's past and sort of the fact that you don't be a deputy for as long as Mons has been without making enemies. To be honest, I'm surprised that he's going to show up again. And I'll be interested to see how they use him. By the way, I really like the alliteration of the Adalic yeah. Doris <laughs> I'm sure they named the character Doris just so they could write that line. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. I'm a sucker for alliteration, as listeners might have noticed. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah, so it's also interesting how Sims speaks about this. Now, we talked about how you've started to think he's looking a little shadier this episode. But how genuine do you think he was being when he talked about, quote unquote, working for the good of the silo? Oh, I think I think in order to work for judicial, you have to believe in the, the idea of the greater good. And I do think Sims is a true believer in the idea that judicial, you know, the, what judicial does in terms of controlling the silo, in terms of policing the silo is for everybody's benefit. So when he said that, I absolutely think he meant it. It's the way Mon sort of very quickly replies the same. Because I don't think Marnes wants any suspicion drawn towards himself. There's something about the, the speed in which, uh, which Marnes reacts that sort of suggests that... That's why I described them as frenemies earlier on. Because I, th mm. I think Marnes... I think Marnes appreciates Sims. I think he appreciates his skill as an investigator. But I don't think for a second that he ever forgets who Sims is or what his job is, or what, what judicial can do to him if he's seen as stepping too far out of line. Because there's, um, there's a line that Sims has in the first, when they're in the mayor's office, you know, you've got four days leave coming up, do whatever you need to do, but do it quietly. Mm, yeah. um, and there's like, there's a way Common delivers that line. And I think that's Sims letting Marnes know that if Barnes wants to, to do a bit of vigilante justice, judicial is going to be okay with that, provided you don't do it in a way that's too disruptive or too messy. You so mean he, think, shouldn't, he shouldn't smash in someone's face in the street? No, he shouldn't smash in, <laughs> smash in somebody's face in the street. So I think, I think Sims and Barnes know each other well. They've obviously worked together before. 
for man's not for a single second does he forget who Sims is, what he represents, or what judicial can do to him if he steps too far out of line. Okay. I think I think Marnes actually really effectively communicates like the fear of a secret police that even the regular police have. Yeah, um, I mean, you spoke in previous episodes about expecting to see judicial and the sheriff's office working together. So I guess that explains the basis of their relationship. I read it more, though, as Sims is maybe slash probably being somewhat sinister. But I, I thought Marnes was being genuine. Um, that was my read, though. I'm curious what listeners at home think. Okay. Um, yeah, by the way, I love that Sims, he calls Bernard Mayor Pencilneck in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's some definite shame between Sims and Bernard. Because Sims has the regulation contempt that any sort of policeman has for the people that don't get their hands dirty. And Bernard goes out of his way to make sure he doesn't get his hands dirty. It's one of his defining character traits. Yeah. So, I mean, I do think that Sims likes and respects Marnes more than Bernard, but that doesn't mean that he's not more aligned with or allied with Bernard. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, now, so back in Marnes' apartment after his run-in uh, with Kennedy in the street, Juliet notices a drawing of John's on the wall, and she realizes she's not the only one grieving an unsanctioned partner. Juliet promises if they work together to solve these murders, she'll go back down to mechanical when they're done. And she offers to post a deputy outside in case anyone comes after Marnes for his shenanigans. And he assures her that he has a shotgun ready, as you mentioned before, that uh, second checkoff shotgun. <laughs> and Jules, she suggests uh, there are some things a shotgun isn't the best solution for. That sounded to me like a conversation about suicide. Did you read it the same way? Yeah, I did. Yeah, Marnes promises that he'll be fine. But as we get to the end of the episode, yeah, that might actually not be up to him. But we'll see. Later, we get a, we do get that shot you mentioned of Marnes standing on a chair. He's stringing something up to the ceiling. And this was definitely meant to mess with us and make us think he's about to hang himself for a moment before we see it's a punching bag, uh, which is a much healthier outlet for his anger. So it's like he's finally channeling his anger in a good way, it looks like. Yeah, it's like a makeshift punching bag. He takes the mattress off the mm -hmm. bed and sort of rolls it up and puts it. Well, I think he's a belt around it, so he kind yeah. of holds, holds the shape of a punching bag. But yeah, it's it's interesting that Marnes just happens to have that hook <laughs> hanging from the ceiling. So I'm guessing that like that makeshift punching bag is something he does fairly regularly. That's his way of staying in shape, probably. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a good speculation. That's a yeah, good observation. Now, back in the time of Baby Jules, we see her pack a bag, leaving behind her brother's stuffed dog for her father to find. And she runs off down to Mechanical and she pauses on the way down in front of Medical, which is where her father works, to sigh guiltily before running on, where we get to see her first meeting with Martha Walker. Luke, you were hoping for this scene. Did it live up to your expectations? Yeah, it did. And I'm hoping we get more of these flashbacks to sort of flesh out their relationship as it evolves. Mm -hmm. Um, and I like the fact that Walker comes yeah. on more or less instantly that this letter is not on the level. And we find out in a few minutes later that she sent, she almost immediately sends a porter to come and fetch yeah. uh, Dr. Nichols. It's interesting that even at this point, we're told that Walker doesn't leave her workshop and there's no, there's no hint of the Carla, the spouse that was mentioned in last week's episode. So we can assume that whatever happened between Walker and Carla had happened previous to baby Jules turning up. 
Yeah, because we also learned that it seems Martha, um, she knew Juliet's mother, too. So Martha looks like she was like a regular mid-level social butterfly before she ditched her wife and became a shut-in. Oh, I, I, I took that the other way. I took that that, that Jules's mother originally came from mechanical. No. And so, oh, okay. No. Okay. Uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe in this version. Not, we haven't not, seen anything the, to suggest not, that. In, not in the book. It, in the book, it doesn't happen that way. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but so, uh, yeah, Martha, she indeed, well, she she realizes it's a forgery because she thinks doctors know how to spell the word mechanical, which is fair. <laughs> but uh, while she's sending up for her father to come down, she assigns Juliet to the scavengers team. And then later we see that her father does indeed respond to the call and comes down. And it's entirely possible that this is the last time he's seen her. I thought that was what you were meant to take from this. I thought that was actually pretty... You think that's clear, yeah. Yeah, I think that was actually pretty clear that that was the last time they saw each other. And I'm sorry, this scene just, like, I know that it's real and I know that people do react this way, but this scene just infuriated me because it's like, your your daughter clearly doesn't want to be here. I disagree. I disagree. I think she clearly did want to be there. And he asks her flat out, he's like, are you happy here? And then she says all this stuff about what hard work it is and how tiring it is. And he says, but are you happy here? And she says, well, at least, you know, when I'm working like this, I don't have to think. And I think that her father recognizes that in himself. Like, that's what he was doing. He was throwing himself into his work so that he didn't have to deal with it. And he's like, "Okay, if this is how she needs to do it, then I'm going to respect that. No, I I took that completely differently. I took the whole running away to mechanical as sort of cry for attention, basically. Uh, I'm going to bite my tongue, but uh, yeah, I'm going to stick to my interpretation. Um, Okay. Yeah, and uh, Luke, we also talked about last week about suspicions online that Martha was a spy of sorts. You were ready to entertain those thoughts last week. How do you feel about it this week? Yeah, I'm actually more ready to entertain those thoughts this week because I thought it was very... um, I thought it was very conveniently timed when Martha gets on the radio at the end of the episode to talk to Jules. And Why conveniently see, timed? I don't know. It just it just seemed because we see Martha like rifling through some papers and looking for something as well and like assembling a little machine. Um, the camcorder. So yeah, I just the way she was like wheedling for information in that conversation. Maybe after what we what we discussed last week. I was sort of primed to hear that. But yeah, I'm I'm not sure I'm entirely convinced with Martha Walker as a spy, but I'm not dismissing it either. I st- I'm on I st- the fence. I still hate and reject this theory at a fundamental level, but I'm glad <laughs> that I'm glad you're representing for those who are pondering. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, regardless, Jules is now in at Mechanical and we see she's sent to shadow an even younger Foxy Noxy, played here by Charlie Coombs. Now, obviously, Knox isn't the head of Mechanical yet, but it still seems like a pretty promotion-forward path to put her on as an untried preteen runaway. What do you think? Yeah, it, it was interesting. I assume that like Walker's done that, but she's still going to keep like a very close eye on both yeah. Knox and Juliet. And I sort of took away from that that Knox was at that point Walker's like protege, and that was the reason that she teamed him up with Juliet. I did wonder, like. At what age are people allowed to start working in mechanical or even start working in the silo? Apparently full 13. Stop, full stop, because <laughs> thir- 13 seems... Yeah, young. 13 seems very young to be doing that kind of work. 
but it's like um, what's there's no point in a university education here no unless, no yeah. and like uh, and like on the other hand in the sort of industrial revolution you know children were starting work in factories much earlier than 13 yeah so i guess in the in the context of the society that the silo is it makes sense but those are some grim teenage years yeah for sure i mean i guess it's a grim life but yeah yeah, and um, during the sequence, we also get to see young Shirley, played by Ida Brooke. And what happens on the other side of the dump for recycling? So here, as you mentioned already, prisoners are being tasked with pulling salvageable parts out of the pile. And Mechanical claims to be able to repair 90% of what's thrown away. The people responsible for hauling the stuff from the drops every five minutes, it turns out that they are petty criminals, indeed, who stole something or started fights, like Marnes did this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Did anything about this mechanical world building surprise you, Luke? No, and I thought the idea that you would have some of the more unpleasant or dangerous jobs as a form of punishment made absolute sense. I do hope over the course of the show we find out more about the criminal justice system within the silo and how it works at levels lower than, than cleaning. Yeah. Um, because the one thing we haven't seen yet, and one thing I'd be really interested in seeing is how a trial actually works because we know they have judicial we know they mm. have judges so I'd, I'd be really interested as a as an element of world building to see how trial actually works yeah that would in, be interesting in the silo yeah that would be interesting i wouldn't mind seeing that also they're definitely adding new facets to what we know about yeah not just everything else but mechanical in particular in this part but so far everything they've added fits into what we know from the books and what we've seen so far in the show I do like the fact that, that um, the young Shirley messes with young Juliet a bit. Oh, they killed some people. Yeah. <laughs> and, like Julie, and like Juliet absolutely believes that. It's like, no, they started, I don't know what they did. They started some fights or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you can see why they became besties or yeah. more. Or maybe. more, possibly. <laughs> now, we also see Jules noticing a new character in the show in the present timeline. But this is someone we talked about in our preview episodes. Lucas Kyle, played by Avi Nash. He seems to spend some of his nights sitting in the up-top cafeteria doing something on paper, which is interesting because remember how precious paper is. Luke, what's your first impression of Lucas on the Bernard de Juliet scale? I don't know. I, I think he's about midway between the two. I'd like to spend a bit more time with him. I thought he was like, he was like trying to flirt with Juliet and it really did not work. He came no? across as... He came across as Really oily, really uh, slimy. Oh, I 130% disagree. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, it's this is my favorite character from the books, and I think I have a bit of a literary crush on him. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I'll talk more about why why that is as we get to know this character better over future episodes. But to me, Avinash, he seems like the ideal casting. He's become like one of my favorites to watch in interviews. Uh, he's a deep thinker who speaks poetically and offers good insights, which reminds me of Lucas. Regular listeners might remember us talking about him in the preview episodes uh, when he was comparing what it's like to grow up in the silo. And he was saying, yeah, imagine living in the silo and that's all you know. It's like living outside in our real world and we're trying to imagine what it's like to live in the sky. Like it's just beyond our comprehension. How would that even work? So I, I think, yeah, this is the kind of character that I see Lucas is, but I don't want to say too much about it. <laughs> Okay, I'm I'm really interested in getting to know him in future episodes. But yeah, he needs to work on his flirting because oh, I, I guess I thought that was really oh, oily. I, oh, I I disagree. He can hit on me anytime. Okay. Um, we also got a couple references in this episode to Juliet's name coming from a play. 
Of course, the first one we'd think of is Romeo and Juliet. But then Lucas says, some say this play was written by a rebel. Luke, what say you? Is it Romeo and Juliet with a twist or a different play altogether? No, I think it's Romeo and Juliet, but somewhere along the line, the play has survived, but William Shakespeare hasn't. So they know the play, but they don't know its origins. Yeah. Like, I was wondering if they had, like, half a copy of Romeo and Juliet in a library somewhere, and, like, they had sort of either the, the first half of the play or the second half of the play, and, like, they've had to improvise the other half. Yeah, so it, it may be some combination of, like, the genuine Romeo and Juliet and uh, a spin that's been put on it by people that live in the silo. So, yeah, it's because we really don't know the extent of what has survived from what right. they call the before times. Right. Like, we know that the rebellion allegedly destroyed, the, like, the silo's history, mm-hmm. but we don't know how much of the prehistory right. of it's... the before times has survived. Right. Yeah, in the book, we do get the title of the play. In fact, we get a flashback to Julia going to the play. That's actually in a later section we might see in episode eight. But the title of the play in the book is The Tragic History of Romeus and Juliet. And, you know, everything's spelled a little bit off. Okay. Luke, though, by the way, I have to warn you, this character Lucas is often called Luke in the book. So I might refer to him that way sometimes. So I hope that doesn't get too confusing. (laughs) Oh, hopefully not. No. Now, the one other interesting difference with the books is that the sky outside the silo at night looks quite clear, whereas in the books, it's totally clouded over with barely a glimpse of the sky. I have a good idea why they might have done this, and this is something that we'll definitely discuss way down the line, but I think we'll get at least more of an idea. Yeah, we're going to get into the next episode at least what Lucas is doing sitting there in the cafeteria staring at the screen. Star charts, Um, star charts. Maybe. Oh, uh, yeah, this is clearly isn't the last we've seen of Lucas in his late night cafeteria habit. <laughs> but in this episode, yeah, we end Marnes' storyline with him breaking the law, breaking the law. Uh, he's hanging a beer bottle over the railing right next to a sign that says not to do so. And uh, yeah, and then we get that devastating flashback of his memories with John's because it's not an episode of Silo if it doesn't end in tears. But his wallowing in his own misery is cut short when his radio intercepts a conversation, the one you mentioned between Jules and Martha on Martha's illegal radio. And Martha asks Jules if she's found an ally up there. And Jules says, perhaps, presumably talking about the very person who's listening in. Love that Walker calls Jules Fixer, by the way. That's her <laughs> nickname. And yeah, after Marnes listens into this, he heads home where someone is waiting to jump him and his reflex is slowed by beer. Marnes ends up on the wrong side of his own shotgun. Luke, what do you think's next for Marnes at this point? It's not looking good for Marnes, is it? I um, I really don't know. I mean, we don't get a good look at who this assailant is, so we don't really know who they are or what they want at this point. I actually thought Marnes, given that he was quite drunk and given sort of his general condition, he actually put up quite a good fight. So I was sort of going, the shotgun, the shotgun. <laughs> Grab the gun! <laughs> but yeah, so he is now looking down the wrong end of his own shotgun. He did try to grab it. He did. He did. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen to Mons. I hope we don't get another main character killed, like, halfway through the series. I think this series, it has sort of used up its allotted number of main character deaths already, oh. to be honest. Oh, take that back. <laughs> I oh. mean, people are, I mean, just in general, like, I think people need to be prepared that this is, uh, there's a lot of death in this series. And I think that they, by having these, like, heavy hitter deaths right up front, you know, it really 
puts things into perspective, like the way that when Ned Stark was beheaded on uh, Game of Thrones, you know, then, you know, oh, wow, literally anyone could die. You know, in this show, Juliet could die. Uh, yeah, but, the, but that happened at episode nine. Yeah, you're right. So this is uh, upping the ante even more. Um, but it's this is like the books. That's uh, yeah. In the books, it's really because, you know, the first two sections, like the first section is all from Holston's perspective and then he dies. And then the second section is all from John's perspective and then she dies. And then the third section is from Juliet's perspective. And you're like, oh, my God, does this mean she's going to die? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So are you saying that, that it doesn't work out well for moms? Then? I'm not I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that, like, it's not like the deaths are all front loaded and we're done now. There's going to be okay. there's going to be a lot. I mean, as as you see, there's there's like strife coming. There's unrest fomenting. There's yeah. going to be more violence and death. It's yeah. not. It's not over for the season. Well, I, I, I'm kind of hoping that the beginning of next episode is Sims bursting into Mans's apartment and you know with taking some out. Yeah, with some goons yeah. from with some goons from judicial. Yeah. yeah. So we learn from the credits that the guy who attacked Marns, his name is Douglas Trumbull, and he's played by Henry Garrett. This isn't a character from the books, but curiously, there was a real-world film director with the name Douglas Trumbull, who passed away last year. He was especially known for pioneering digital effects in films like 2001, A Space Odyssey, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But for the Douglas Trumbull of the Silo universe, any ideas where he came from and what his motive might be? No, not a clue. And I think that was deliberate. I think you're not meant to know who he is or what he wants at this point. Yeah, I love your idea of Sims busting in and saving Marnes. I, I would be happy for that to happen. <laughs> yeah, just the, like two or three goons from Judicial that yeah. could make sure that, that yeah, so Sims is going to burst down the door. That's my head count. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I'm not going to explain how at this point, but Marnes' storyline has already deviated significantly from the book. So okay. Uh, okay. all bets are off. Okay. And uh, yeah, so Jules, she says when she's talking to Martha, Jules says she'll know more tomorrow. And Martha says that there's been progress down there. And you talked about her playing with that machine, which was the camcorder that Jules brought her from the down deep. And Martha seems to have repaired it. And it's playing something. But we're going to have to wait until next week to find out what that is. It didn't register with me that that was the, the camcorder. I just thought that was some random piece of machinery. Yeah, so oh, I think that's, that's, that's I think that's why she's calling her down. You know, she's ah, like that thing I was working on. Yeah. Oh, oh, that makes sense now. Oh, okay. Does that change your spy theory in any way? Yeah, well, it does not entirely, no. but a little okay. bit. A okay. Little bit. Well, yeah. So, um, next week's episode though, it's called the janitor's boy, and I'm thinking that this might mean we're finally going to meet our famous Paul Billings character that everyone keeps talking about. In the book, he was the son of a plumber, but there's a good chance they change his father's profession for the show. Are you excited to finally oh, see I'm, Billings? I'm fascinated to finally meet Billings and find out why Judicial thinks mm-hmm. so highly of this person. So yeah, I'm all down for, yeah. for meeting Billings. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah, me too. Uh, it's He's a complex character, which they might have added even more complexity in for the show. Um, and after all the interviews with the actor, Chinaza Uche, I'm thinking they're do- going to be doing something really interesting with him. Okay. But we're not done with this episode of Woolship Dust yet. We have a mixed bag of feedback on this episode with a few fun theories in there that I'm looking forward to presenting for your consideration, Luke. But first, a quick commercial break to help us cover the costs of this podcast. See you on the other side. Now opening the listener feedback channel. Welcome back. Let's hop right into it, shall we? 
Yeah. So our first piece of feedback is from Stuart Davison, who's at Dove71 on Twitter, and he's also in the Lorehounds Discord. He says, I just watched episode four of Silo. I was screaming at the TV when Marnes was fighting the intruder. You had him on the ground. Why go for the shotgun? Three good slams of the guy's head into the ground, and it's good night, Vienna. <laughs> Any thoughts on the fight choreo? No, go for the shotgun. Yeah. Like, the, 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 it like, didn't the, work. The, yeah, the shotgun is going to end the argument. You know, you don't know how tough this guy is, but he isn't going to stand up to a shotgun blast to the head. So. Yeah, but I have yeah. to agree with Stuart in that, you know, if you have, like, he went for the shotgun and it didn't work, and that was a, more of a risk to go for it, whereas if he could have overpowered him physically without it, maybe that would have ended it. Yeah. But I don't know. I, mean, I have to watch the fight choreo again. Yeah, and I mean, it's like you've already pointed out, Mons is half drunk anyway, so yeah. he may yeah. not be thinking particularly clearly at that point. Yeah. So we also have a, a message from Her Royal Bubbliness at JDites underscore on Twitter. She says, my heart just keeps breaking for Marnes. And I love how they tied in Juliet's backstory with seeing Marnes's grief over a loved one and being in a deceased apartment, uh, the recycling. Curious about what Walker has found and Marnes heard it too. Uh, yeah, I think that was about the camcorder. I can't tell if Bernard is trying to suck up to Juliet or just pretending to. So sly. Luke, our resident Bernard opinion haver, what do you think? Oh, no, he's definitely not trying to suck up to Juliet. My sort of reading on Bernard is he needs Juliet to be sheriff while he's mayor pro temp, while he's interim mayor, but he's going to get rid of her the second he's elected mayor in his own right. So he's just trying to, to get along with Juliet for the time being. Okay. Like, he's, he's not reconciled to her being sheriff at all. Yeah, yeah, I, I have to agree with you on that one, yeah. Um, we also got uh, feedback from Geek in Review at The Geeks Reviews on Twitter. And uh, he says, loved this week's silo. Last week was a bit slower paced, but really enjoyed this one. It got my mind going. Why ban things like Shakespeare? Also, I was 50-50 convinced they weren't on Earth, but I don't think that now. The tech we see, like computers, is older than we are. And also, they'd be more science focused. But what sold me was the radios. I initially thought they wanted to stop talking between levels. But now I think it's in case they hear something from the outside. Juliet's journey of having to go down to go up works out well. The truth of what's going on at the top levels of the silo will be found in the bottom where the digger was. And he also adds, also, I keep asking, why was this place built? It can't be a government bunker, as that would be more militaristic. Also, the title of mayor, not president, indicates there to be a rank above that somewhere. So, yeah, so there's a bunch of intriguing points and questions in there. About the radios, though, I'd ask, then wouldn't they be worried about the sheriff and deputies hearing something? Uh, I'm thinking that, you know, because the sheriffs and deputies, they all have radios. But I'm thinking that the speculation that it's about people having less communication is more on the money. What do you think, Luke? Yeah, I think that's right. I also think, like, the the material to build radios is probably quite scarce. So you probably do want to limit that for the people that have like a need to be able to communicate between levels. But yeah, I, I think it's possible that part of the reason might be because the people that originally built the silo didn't want the people in the silo to be able to overhear whatever's going on outside. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's a possibility. Okay, good. Yeah, we're going to keep an eye on that for sure. So hearing from Silo TV fans at Silo 17 Squad on Twitter, they say Sims and Marnes having a casual enough working relationship that they can come to each other's apartments for drinks actually rewired my DNA. Made some dying whale sounds. That's a good thing. 
uh, lost my shit when he just casually opened the fridge. <laughs> now, yeah, I not, agree. Not, not only do they have a casual re- enough relationship that they can come around to drinks, they have a casual enough relationship that Sims can just help himself. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I sort of got the impression that Sims like doesn't regularly visit Mons' yeah. apartment. Oh, I had the opposite. I, I think they've done it before. Oh, I had the opposite impression because for me, if I'm just walking into someone's place and opening the fridge, I know that person very well. Yeah, but but you're not an agent of judicial. I get. The, yeah, I but get, still. I, no, I get. I get the. If a policeman that, comes into my house and opens my fridge and be like, "What the hell are you doing? You don't know me." <laughs> yeah, but I just get the sense that judicial can get away with doing stuff like that. I know. I'm reading bestie behavior here for sure. That's okay. My... Yeah, and then so we also got feedback from Smug Oregonian on Reddit, and they said. Uh, I thought it was a decent episode overall. These last two episodes have some moments where it stumbles, but I do feel like there is some promise and hope for a smooth ride as it gets going. Now, they continue with a lot more detail about what they liked and didn't like, so I'm going to pull out some of the highlights, skipping over any future spoilers, and pause to collect our thoughts as we go. Uh, So they say, My favorite part was getting some backstory with Jules and Walker and learning about the Down Deep. I personally thought the scenes with Juliet and her father were pretty bad. I don't know if it was writing or acting or what, but they were kind of cringy, which was weird because the scenes with Jules Walker and her father was good when Ian Glenn wasn't talking. Now, (laughs) like I said, Ian Glenn's portrayal really worked for me this time in this episode, um, especially that look, like I said, that he gave Jules the last time he sees her. But Luke, I don't think you agree. I think you might agree with Smug Oregonian. It's not that it doesn't work. I believe that that's Dr. Daddy's genuine reaction, but just... My my objection to it wasn't that it wasn't realistic. My objection to it is that he's being incredibly selfish and sort yeah. of indulging in his own pain rather than helping Jules through hers. Now, I can see that being a genuine human reaction, but just not a very laudable one. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah um, and so I, that tells you a lot about Peter Nichols' character, um, but not in a good way. But it's not that I didn't think it was a realistic portrayal. I just thought yeah. it was a... I just thought it told you a lot about his character. Okay. Um, now, Smug Oregonian continues, I also think they are stumbling with the pacing a bit. It's good to take it slow and build backstory, but I think they need more mystery sprinkled in. I don't find everything slow as far as dragging on. It's flying by for me, too. And after each episode, I'm so upset I have to wait a week for the next. I'm meaning that it is slow because in the books, every event just hits right after the next. Personally, I think that's what makes the books great but I completely understand why they have to drag it out a bit for the show. And I think it's working, but I do think it is coming off as slow for some of the show-only viewers. And as book readers, we need them to like it too. Otherwise, we may not get the conclusion to the story on screen, and that would be devastating. Luke, as our resident show-only viewer, what do you think about the pacing at this point? No, I, I don't really have an issue with the pacing. I don't find it particularly slow. And I thought, I thought having a more thoughtful episode this week after having quite an action-focused episode right. last week, I thought it was actually quite a nice counterpoint. I do think they're going to have to start having Juliet and Mons make some progress in unraveling this mystery because it's a 10-episode series, and next week we're going to hit the halfway point. Right. So I do think if the intention is to wrap up the mystery this season, I think they are going to have to start making some I mean, progress. which which mystery, though? Because, um, I mean, I, I'm... I'm like they're not, yeah. They're. Yeah. I can tell you already. They're not going to tell you who the founders are this season. But there are going to be. Uh, there are going to be a bunch of mysteries answered, and uh, 
there are just so many layers of mystery that yeah, you know, I'm th- that's going to be the whole show. I, I guess I'm thinking principally of what happened to George and right. who is okay. responsible for killing Mayor Jones. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, Smug Oregonian concludes, honestly, though, I'm being overly critical because I love this story and want it to be perfect. Honestly, overall, I'm pretty happy with everything going forward and thought this was a pretty decent episode. So White Paper Bag on Reddit says about the characterization of Marnes on the show as a change that does seem to drift from the source material. I also believe it to be another not bad change for the adaptation. I'm mostly indifferent, but could also see it being something book readers may look upon differently from one another. TV Marnes is mourning differently here in comparison to his novel counterpart. A lot more aggression shines through than uh, just low-functioning depression, which I feel is a possible mirror to this adaptation of Juliet as well. Both seem to fall on bad habits and aggression in their times of hardship, which I feel makes sense for future character development. Luke? Yeah, like I say, I think it's just the difference between book and screen. Is On screen, you have to make people a bit more demonstrative, just to make it clearer to the audience what it is that they are feeling. Because obviously on screen, you lose the ability to do the internal monologue or yeah. to do much of an internal monologue. So I think you have to you have to sort of paint emotions in slightly broader colors than on screen than you would in the book. But like White Paper Bag was saying, I don't think any of the stuff we're seeing on screen is inconsistent with the characterization that we've had in previous episodes. Like I think Mons is behaving how I would expect that character to behave in those circumstances. Right. Um, Elisa on Discord asks, why is Marn snooping in on Juliet's radio calls? What do you think? I don't think he was. I think he just mm. picked it up by accident. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I don't think that was deliberate. But of course, yeah, if I, I wouldn't turn off either if I heard it. <laughs> yeah. And then Rocky Zim, on, also on Discord, says, speaking to you, Luke, um, when you were questioning why they're so stuck on Billings, Rocky said, I have to assume to have control of the silo, more of a puppet. So... We won't go into that. We've gone into that enough, but they do go on. I think Sims is going to be the key for this story. I think he will be convinced or find out the silo is not what it seems and will help find out what's really going on. I think he is another puppet type who is not told everything. Them showing us his kid, I think, gives him some empathy and a reason for doing what is right. What do you think? Oh, I can see where they're coming from. I wouldn't describe Sims as a puppet. I would describe him as a true believer. I would describe mm. him as somebody who is genuinely... We like we don't know what Judicial's overall plan is yet, but I think right. we, can, we can describe Sims as somebody who believes in that plan, whatever okay. it is, and, and genuinely believes that it's in the best interest of the silo. Now, it may be that there's an event later on in the show that shakes that belief, Mm-hmm. And yeah, that could bring him into an alliance with Juliet, particularly if that brings a conflict between the good of the silo and the good of his family. Right. Um, right. I think that could be really interesting. But yeah, I wouldn't describe him as a puppet. No, no. Rocky also says Lucas is going to be key. He is either the judge or someone who will know more and play an important role. Now I can already tell you that we know Judge Meadows is a woman and that this character's last name is Kyle. It's Lucas Kyle. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have an association with the judge. So actually, yeah, that was it for our mailbag this week. Uh, We had to close the mailbag a little earlier so that we could record on Saturday. And next week it will be the same. So if you're interested in having your thoughts and theories about episode five of Silo discussed on the next episode of Wool Shift Dust podcast, please get those thoughts to me between when the episode drops on Friday or, you know, Thursday night in some places. 
and before Saturday. I'll pin a tweet and a post on Reddit to collect feedback as soon as the episodes go live. And you can always talk to us about the show and a bunch of other shows and books on the Lorehounds Discord server. Link in the show notes. Next week, I'll still be traveling. So the episode will drop either Sunday if I manage to pull off that miracle or Tuesday, but definitely not Monday because I'll be on a plane the entire day. To find out when it goes live, as well as future episodes, just subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and it'll be waiting for you as soon as it's ready. Uh, Five-star reviews on your app of choice also really help us to get the podcast to new ears. And the more ears we can get listening, the more we'll have to invest in improving the sound quality, et cetera, of the podcast. Until then, Luke, where can they find you? They can find me at Luke Middup on Twitter, and also... When I watch the episode for the first time, I will leave my initial thoughts on the Discord. I will try not to be too spoilery, but I have found out how you do the two little straight line. You did the spoiler blackout. Redaction blackout things. So, yeah. So if anybody's interested in my initial thoughts when I watch the episode for the first time, because both myself and Alicia watch the episodes multiple times before we right. record this podcast. Because so that's wants, our job. Because <laughs> that's our job. So if, <laughs> if anybody wants my initial first impression, follow me on the Discord on Friday afternoons. And yeah, you can also find me in the Discord, obviously, and on Twitter as well, at Alicia CB. Uh, you'll find our handle spelled out in the show notes. Plus, I'll be popping up on an upcoming preview of the new Across the Spider-Verse film. And that that podcast episode will be out soon on the Lorehounds feed. Now, we are now proud members of the Lorehounds Network, the publishers of this podcast. If you're not familiar with the Lorehounds, in addition to covering the big MCU events, you'll find episodes coming out this week and beyond covering, for instance, the final seasons of Ted Lasso and Barry, the new show, The White House Plumbers as well as other treats like a personal favorite of mine is their book nook coverage of Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea books with fantasy scholar Marilyn. Now, more nerdy coverage is always more better in my book, right, Luke? Oh, definitely. But for now, it's time for these two nerds to go outside. See you in a week. You don't have to hold us at gunpoint. We only want what's best for the silo.